Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, migration madness. New figures from the Home Office cast doubt over the government's ability to tackle migration as they let record levels of people into the country last year. Plus, crisis management. Palestine protests are descending into mob rule, warns the Prime Minister as he instructs police chiefs to crack down on the hate marches. And an inquiry into killer cop Wayne Cousins finds that he hid in plain sight while multiple chances to stop him were ignored. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. It's all about the numbers tonight on this show. The numbers of people granted asylum last year, 62,336. The number of pounds spent on housing illegal migrants in hotels, £15 million a day. The number of dependents brought in by workers, 279,000. 131. And the number of times killer cop Wayne Cousins has reported to the police. You will not believe what you're going to hear. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. We're pulling out all the stops. Now, Newton's third law of motion tells us that what goes up must come down. Well, the government clearly failed its physics because last year they granted asylum to more people than ever before, a record-breaking 62,336. And that's despite them getting nearly a fifth fewer asylum applications than the year before, still at a whopping 67,337. By New Year's Day, more than 111,000 individuals were receiving asylum support in the UK. That's enough people to fill Lincoln. And housing them in migrant hotels now costs a staggering £5.4 billion just last year. An enormous burden for the taxpayer working out at an average of an incredible 15 million quid every single day. Our asylum system is clearly rotten. Hmm, bit like this apple. Excuse me, sorry, just going to spit that out. Um, now, I'm joined by the New Culture Forum's Amy Callaghan's immigration lawyer, Harjap Singh Bangal, and former UKIP leader, Henry Bolton. Sorry about the histrionics at the start, guys, but, you know, this is getting to the point where you have to do something clownish now to try and get the attention of this government who don't seem to know their arse from their elbow, if you'll pardon the expression. No, they don't. They really don't. I mean, it's getting worse. No, no. For the last couple of years, all we've heard about is Rwanda, Rwanda, Rwanda. Yeah. That's the thing that's going to solve this right. problem. That's Which the, we know it isn't. That's the deterrent. We've been told it's a deterrent. How can we ever have any serious deterrent 
when we are allowing in more claims than any other place in Europe. Yeah. And asylum seekers will know this. We live in a digital age. Information travels quickly. They will know that you're, you're actually three times more likely to have your claim accepted here than in France. Yeah. That's why everyone's coming here. So there is no use this government talking about deterrence until they actually stop these asylum claims yeah. and stop our soft-touch approach to processing right. asylum seekers. I mean, there is no deterrent. Harjap, you and I have spoken about this many times. You know, it now seems to me that there's a very tiny number of people who are not being granted asylum. It looks like, you know, minuscule numbers in the thousands. What happens to them? Because presumably they don't get deported. We can't deport them. Well, this is a problem. Removals have been going down steadily since yeah. 2010. Um, to be fair, last year they've gone up, but they're so minuscule in their numbers. Mm that it's not really in the numbers of the 30,000s that they were in 2010 and 11, yeah. 12. You know, 6,000 enforced removals, and most of them were Albanians. Yes. So it doesn't really... Almost like another gimmick, you might think. Yeah, it doesn't really deter anyone. Mm. And the fact is, we're not catching the gangs. We're not stopping the people traffickers. Yeah. We've seen them advertise on a social media. Yeah, TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. yeah, you can pick them up on radars. Yeah. And the routes are the same, from the French coast to the Kent coast. Yeah for the past 20 years. Yeah, it's not like secret where they're coming from. Yeah, it's, everyone seems to know and until we don't have any processing centre. Italy have been very smart recently. They've opened a processing centre mm. in Albania. Yeah. So um, the nearest country to them. Yeah. Whereas our one is going to be thousands of miles away in Rwanda to which yeah. we haven't sent a single person. In fact, last year we granted asylum to 21 Rwandan people. Yeah. So how, how we, on one, one side we're saying it's safe and then we're saying, no, but 21 people can't be sent back because it's not safe. Right. So it's a total shambles. It really is. And this government really hasn't got a grip or a clue, despite no. what it said. And they're good at massaging the figures. It's incredible. And also, Henry, what kind of business do you go from 7 million uh, a day to house people in hotels to 15 million? Nobody saw that one coming. I mean, that's maybe the most surprising figure well, of all. I, you say nobody saw that coming, but I think some of us did. Um, you know, the reality is that the pressure last year was building on Europe's southern, southern uh, borders, right. coming across the Mediterranean. Italy had twice the number of uh, people coming across into Italy than it had the previous year. So we were inevitable that, all, that historically always had a sort of 12 months thereabouts, yeah. nine to 12 months lag. We, would, we were inevitably going to see that in the North, uh, North French coast and coming across the channel. So the, the, the increase in cost, the increase in everything was inevitably going mm. to, to go up. Um, you know, and, and 5.4 billion pounds... Yeah. I mean, you know, that, uh, I think the aircraft carriers that we got, the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier was 4.3. Right. Um, you know, the, these are horrendously huge numbers we're talking about, as you said at the beginning of the programme. Mm. There is no deterrent, as you rightly said, but we, the government is focused on providing a deterrent to the people who, are, who, who want to come here. That's part of the story. They need to be deterring the people smugglers. And that means going after them. It means hunting them down mm. ruthlessly. Now, I've dealt with these people, albeit some years ago in the southern Balkans. And they are, I mean, uh, Rishi Sunak or, no, um, the, uh, I think it was Rishi Sunak or James Cleverly said just a couple of days ago that these people are numb to the deaths and the misery they're causing. They've been, that's nothing new. They've no. been numb to this well, they're for criminal decades. Human traffickers. They I mean, don't care. Right. They care about one thing, and that's the money they make mm. from this, uh, exploiting the, the immigrants and so on, and actually marketing that movement. So the only way to deter them is to go after them, as we did until 2006 when Tony Blair pulled the funding on. Yeah. But, of course, it's not just the illegal migrants we're talking about here, because these figures, um, Amy, cover a great deal of, of the 
legal immigration facts as well. And even though Rishi Sunak has now decided to outlaw um, dependents coming into the country with other people on worker visas, 279,000 or so came in last year alone. That's a lot of people. Yeah. And these are all members of a family of someone who's been given a work visa. I mean, I just don't understand why that happens. Does that happen anywhere else? No, I, not that I know. I mean, it's too, it's too little too late hmm. that Rishi's now introducing some, some you know, minor policy changes with regards to immigration. We know that it's over 750,000 people coming in last year. Um, it was only in 2019, it was 250. Yeah. It's, going well, it's actually 1.2 million, isn't it? Well, That's overall, the yeah, the gross figures, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is extraordinary. This is at a time when we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got a housing crisis. Mm. More and more young people can't get housing. People can't get GP appointments. Nurses are striking, doctors are striking, everyone seems to be striking. Yeah. There's like limited resources and everybody's feeling it. And then people look at their newspapers and they see these ridiculous statistics of a million people coming, over a million people mm. coming into the country. Half of asylum seekers being granted hotel accommodation, you know, when people are trying to make ends meet and can't, can barely get social housing themselves, people that actually live here. Yeah. It's, it's just such a slap in the face to British citizens. Yeah, it seems to be out of control. Are we, are we the mugs here, Harjap? Because we do sit here quite a lot and talk about this and we say the same things. You know, there are, th there are those who say, well, you need care workers, you need people to work in the NHS, we need to import workers because that's what the businesses of this country tell us. But there's something going very wrong between those conversations and government policy. Well, the government promised us that they'd train British people up to do to do the British jobs. Yeah. They failed to do that. It's no. been seven years. They haven't trained anybody that. even up to be government ministers. I mean, yeah. they're well, useless. They do, <laughs> you know, but they, they, yeah, they yeah. failed. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's absolutely a shambles. I mean, there's no point stopping immigration on one hand from the EU right. and then saying we're going to let a lot of Indians and Zimbabweans right. and Nigerians in. Because then what was the point? Yeah. We might as well get our workforce from our neighbours. Yeah. And since we've upset our neighbours, stop the freedom of movement for our own British people to go abroad. Although a lot of them did stay here, though, didn't they? I they, mean, the five million people from the EU did decide to yeah. stay in the UK. Yeah, but you'll be surprised to know that the biggest number of port people sent back from the port were actually Romanians. 48% yeah. of people from port removals were actually Romanians. Mm. And because of, uh, under the Brexit laws, they're not qualified to work here anymore. Yeah. So what's happening here? I mean, housing, education... That is just government policy, you know, totally the government to blame. Yeah. Migrants, to be fair, they come on work visas, they pay tax, they have to pay an extra NHS yeah, but they not, Yeah, but hang on, if they bring dependents with them, they're still a, they're not a net, they're a net, they're not a net benefit. They're a net drain, aren't they? Well, the dependent can work, they can't claim public funds. So on their visa, it actually says no, no recourse to public funds. Yeah, but the, the statistics are showing us that the dependents are not working. Uh, Pretty much. Yeah, but they have the right to work. Now, asylum seekers don't have the right to work for a year. That's why we have to house them in hotels. So if they had permission to work, and then the well, argument... Well, we don't have to house but, them in hotels. Yeah. Well, we we could house them to. in a detention camp. We haven't got a detention Yeah, but they could do that, though. We just don't, haven't got... We, we they haven't could got do that. Henry, let me bring you in, because, yeah. you know, they don't have to be housed in hotels. They don't. We, no. There's no human right that says you must have at least a minimum of three or four stars and stay in a hotel uh, with a cleaner and with food and with a bit of money in case you fancy to wander into the town. Uh, all the way through this from the beginning, from the moment a migrant makes the decision to move here, um, at the whole process of that movement until they get here, what happens to them when they get mm. here, all of that um, and how we manage that is a matter of decision for the British government. Yeah. And what we're seeing here is not a series of accidents. We're seeing decisions that are made by government mm. ministers and by the prime minister to do or not to do something, or, and we are seeing total incompetence. Yeah. 
none of the, there is not a proper connection between what the Foreign Office does, what the intelligence services do, what the police do, what the Border Force and Home Office do, what all the different other different agencies involved. And there, there's a myriad of them. I would involve at least 13 government depart mm. departments in an integrated national strategy. But we don't have such a thing. We mentioned Albania earlier. Albania has an integrated national border strategy. The Republic of Macedonia has one. The Republic of Tajikistan, these poor countries, mm. they all have them. And it has boosted the efficiency of their borders 10, 20, yeah. 30 fold. Here, the government refuses to do it. It's incoherent. And more and approach. more, but, you know, when, when, but, when we were saying before we have to get out of the EU because we can't be dealing with those levels of immigration, mm. the EU are dealing with them better now than we are. You know, most European countries have now got a stronger immigration policy than we've got. France well, just deported a guy who was in the country for about, I think, less than a month. Mm. They decided they didn't want him, kicked him out straight away. Well, well indeed, and that, that goes back to what, what Harjap was saying. Our returns have gone down, yeah. and you know, over over years, and that again is lack of resources, lack of planning, lack of effort. Well, there's no lack in, of resources in, in the, the financial department. Oh, they're finding you know, fifteen million quid a day. Indeed, in, in and and fifteen million quid a day, five point four billion a year. Well, you know, there are other government departments that are crying out for that sort of money to support. The, the people here. And, you know, we've got a serious problem. In Germany, they've got 663,000 foreign-born workers in their healthcare writ yeah. large, care and healthcare, doctors, nurses, right. care, care workers, and so on. Here, we've got, I, I, I think the figure is around about 1.3 million. Mm. Now, you know, it, it, it's twice as many. Why is that? It's at least twice as many, uh, maybe three and, times. And many of and them may have brought, I'm sorry to cut you short, but yeah. we want to bring Amy back sorry. because we, we, we're a bit short of time. You know, many of those people would have brought a dependent with them and maybe yeah. two or maybe three. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a lot more than we'd expect. We yeah. actually don't know how many because a lot of these people go underground. Yeah. We're not tracking them. I don't think we have a clue. No, we don't have a clue. And with, with the asylum uh, seeker process, here it's, it's very, very soft in that really there's a lot of pressure on the Home Office and the Civil Service to, to push people through to accept their mm. claim. It's a lot harder to reject someone than it is to accept someone. And obviously they, they don't want a backlog of asylum claims. So, you know, we've seen in the recent case of... Um, Abdulazidi, the, the Clapham acid attacker, yeah. um, that all he needed to do was say that he was a Christian yeah. and he, his asylum seeker pr uh, claim was accepted even though he'd committed sexual assault. He'd yeah. been to prison for a, a crime yeah. and he was still accepted. So really, you, you know, the message has been given, you can pretty much do anything and you will be able to stay right. here. And that's the trouble, Harjab, isn't it, finally, um, to come to you because once you set foot on, on, you know, boots on the ground, as it were, uh, on the beach at Dover, you're in and you're not going anywhere. The fact is that, once again, removals. So 50,000 people coming in, it's not a problem if yeah. you're sending 60,000 back. Right. The problem comes when 50,000 come in and you're only sending 6,000 back or 3,000 yeah. back. Mm -hmm. Now, that slope has been like that. And mm -hmm. only recently, coincidentally, before an election year where this government mm -hmm. sees it's going to get battered, yeah. that they've decided, oh, do you know what? We might start sending a few I people think, back. I don't think you've got a hope in hell of that. I, I don't think there's, uh, this strategy is going to work. It's too little, too late. Mm. And they're and, not putting the resources into it. And it should have been managed a lot yeah. better. Yeah. And this doesn't matter whoever the Home yeah. Secretary is. Can you not set up a law firm that specifically deals with deporting people? Well, this, eh? it's called, it's, there's got to be some money in that. Her Majesty's government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they can't do it though. They but need some proper people. They're going to leave us all bankrupt. You know, they need proper people like Henry to stop <laughs> people coming in, and proper lawyers like you to help them get Ironically, out. Ironically, the government are very loath to take advice of people who are actually oh, involved it, on the street level in the ground. Absolutely, they and, don't want to listen I've to us. And I've worked with 57 different countries on borders, and this country is the worst. Mm. I can say that as a categorical statement. Yeah. 
This country is the worst in terms of its government taking advice from other people in, in the security sector. Yeah. And I used to work for the government, and they still don't listen. Unbelievable. Listen, great to talk to all of you. Thank you very much for your contribution. I mean, we'll be talking about this all the rest of the year, I'm sure, when it goes up from 15 billion um, you know, to 30 billion and 40 billion. Unbelievable. You're watching the one and only Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up next, protesters are hijacking our democracy, and that's a warning from Rishi Sunak. More coming up after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Britain's at risk of descending into mob rule, says the Prime Minister, as violent and intimidatory protesters disparage the nation's democratic processes. Here's an example of these tensions and pro-Palestine activists came during a Chorley Council meeting on Tuesday. Free, free Palestine! Free, free, free Palestine! Palestine. Why has no motion been put to this chamber? We were told that we, if they would be happy, the Labour group would be happy to put a motion to this chamber. Why has that not happened? Because it's not enough bloody Gaza. Get out! Go on! I'm joined now by my panel, Deputy Political Editor at the Sun, Ryan Sabey, Political Commentator Candice Holdsworth, and Journalist at the Telegraph, Steve Edginson. Uh, good evening to all of you. Um, I think that probably sums up the state of the nation, doesn't it? Uh, because it's bloody Chorley, not Gaza. Um, unbelievably, I think that guy now has been investigated uh, for some kind of uh, stramash that happened after all of that. People pushing and shoving. I mean, you and I, Ryan, have talked about this before. Every time anybody from the Labour Party goes out anywhere... Um, they just get harangued and harassed and shouted at by people from their own side who don't think they're doing enough. Yeah, that happen, happens, happens all the time. And I think this is one of the key things that Rishi Sunak was trying to get to, yeah. this mob brawl. Yeah. Elected officials, those, whether they're MPs, whether they're councillors, you know, serving up and down the country, that when they are carrying out their duties, whether yeah. it's in Parliament, whether it's you know, walking to and from Parliament, local democracy there, whether in the council chamber... They have to be able to do their job without fear or favour. Right. They have to be able to, you know, cast their vote on whatever policy right. it be and not be intimidated. Exactly. Because they're going to spend this £31 million on something. You would imagine not much of that will trickle down, Candice, to uh, the Chorley Local Council meeting, would you? Well, yes. And also, I mean, it is in... he probably shouldn't have strong-armed her out of the room. Right. You know, you probably shouldn't do that. But it is true that it is Chorley and it's not Gaza. Yeah. And this, it's just taking over now. Yeah. I mean, various councils all around the, the world, actually, have passed resolutions about this. Yeah. And you think, well, My what about... My was Preston. Well, what about... Yes, yes. You know. Local taxpayers in that region, I mean... Does that matter to them? Is it relevant to their lives? Really? It, no. No, it's really not. But again, this is the problem we've got, Stephen, isn't it? I mean, we've been talking just before about asylum figures and the fact that, you know, more and more people are coming into the country. Um, you were writing uh, today about how Home Office insiders are telling you that, you know, they're basically rushing everything through, none of which is really helping the cause of mob rule on the streets. I mean, I've been talking about this since last October, that, you know, the police have got the powers to stop these marches from doing what they're doing, disrupting the nation, but they're just not using them. I think the police are getting their calls all wrong on this. As you say, yeah. they aren't policing these march properly, marches properly. But then at the same time, they are investigating people like Lee Anderson for his comments. Yeah. I thought that we lived in a democracy where MPs are allowed to express their views without fear and favour of, of being investigated by the police for a so-called hate crime. Right. And it's got as, nothing to do with the police, And you make frankly. a really good point about mass immigration as yeah. well. I think this, these mobs and these hate rule and so on they're all a result of having a multicultural society yeah. where 
Conflicts in, in, in foreign countries yeah. have become a dominant domestic political yeah. issue in Britain, and this is a completely novel thing. Yeah, somebody said to me the other day, and I don't know how true it is, that some of the things that we seem to be now adopting is basically Pakistani politics. And you take a look at Pakistani politics and you see what they do. You see what happens to people like Imran Khan. He gets locked up. He gets his legs shot at. You know, these are people uh, who are not used to dealing in a democratic way with people that they disagree with. And there's some people like... See, Harriet Harman, of yeah. all people, actually wants to... Uh, surrender completely. Right. Our ministers attacking her. It'll this just week. be easier to work from home. Well, I said this the other day. I mean, if we're spending thirty-one million pounds of taxpayers' money on protecting our MPs, should we not be told who's making threats? You'd have thought so. And that thirty-one million pound, I think, it really has to go. Can you imagine? This is we're six months, seven months out from a general election. Can yeah. you imagine what it's going to be like right. if, if you know, if this conflict is, is still going on? Mm. It could be really unbearable. Yeah. Well, the Rochdale by-election is going on as, as we speak, so we can't really talk about that. But that's going to be whatever the fallout from that is is going to be fascinating. And you know, there's going to be more by-elections. There's going to be more hustings. We have got the mayoral election in London coming up. You know, it's not going to get any quieter or any safer for people. No, it isn't. And you know, the thing is as well, look, people do need the right to protest. That is a sacred right that we have in this country. It is judging, however, when it becomes political and I don't think these are protests anymore. No, turning I think up they're some, events. Well, it's interesting because we were just talking about the police and they were saying that actually, yes, they can stop a protest if it becomes intimidating. Right. Turning up at someone's house is intimidating. Yeah. I can't believe there was even any confusion about that. Right. I mean, that is designed to intimidate someone. Of course. That's personally targeting them. And even them. threatening to do it is intimidating. Yeah. You know, you don't have to punch somebody to be charged with assault. You know, you don't have to physically hurt somebody uh, to be charged with threatening behaviour. You know, all of this is threatening behaviour. All of it is designed to put MPs off getting yeah. controversial about Gaza. And we, we know that if it was Tommy Robinson outside Parliament yeah. screaming that we're going to lock them up yeah. there, he would be shut down and arrested of he immediately. Would. Yeah. But the fact that these are... Islamist protesters, mm. people supporting Gaza and so on, I think they get some kind of weird protection from the police because yeah. they're worried to police these protests right. properly. So as you say, there's a huge disparity here between how the police are acting mm. in terms of who are protesting and which side they're on. Yeah. And a line has been crossed. You look outside Keir Starmer's house, you had just off oil, you had a protester actually go to his house mm. with a letter to deliver a message right. to him and pull it, they're pulling it all over social media, yeah. all over Twitter. It was it's just far too much. Yeah. That, that definitely crosses the line. Oh, What's the social media elements as well in all of this as well? Does it that are people doing as well to put it on social media? Mm. They're looking for those viral moments. Yeah. They are. Well, we saw Greenpeace going to Rishi Sunak's home, didn't we? Luckily, he wasn't there. But nevertheless, you know, going to somebody's house, I think, should be punishable by quite a serious. Um, you know, penalty. On that, it was but, incredible that they actually yeah. got on top of the house. This yeah. is the Prime Minister's house. How right. did that yeah. even happen? Or issuing a death threat. There should be absolutely no tolerance mm. for issuing death threats no. to people. No. I mean, but the intimidation isn't going to go away. I mean, I said this yesterday, that we're going to probably see, Stephen, sort of some kind of street warfare going on because the police, now that they've let it go for so long, are going to find it very difficult to get any of it back. And the protesters themselves have said, we'll do what we like as they did last Saturday at London Tower Bridge, just blocked it off. I think the problem that MPs have is that when the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, talks about death threats and so on, and he doesn't want another MP being killed, quite rightly, I think, you know, David Amos obviously was killed by an Islamic extremist. However, by 
giving in to the extremists, by giving in to the mob, you're sort of encouraging them to continue their extremist actions. And when Parliament acquiesced and, and, and Lindsay Hoyle changed the procedures and changed the rules in order to give in to this mob, I think that's given them a kind of mm. green light to continue yeah. their terrible actions. Well, because they also know that if there are any arrests to be had, if you example uh, those three girls that were done for putting parachutes on their shoulders, they were all let off mm. on the grounds that, oh, well, you know, it was a good cause, they didn't really really threaten anybody, you know, they actually put a Hamas parachute, mm. effectively, uh, as a symbol of their hatred towards the Jewish race. Yeah, and you look at cases like that, you look at cases of Just Up Oil, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, there seems to be this feeling that if you do, pro- do protest, you know, there may be some sort of peaceful element to it, but if you are brought before the court, um, the, the juries may well just let, let, let them off. Well, they yeah. will. Absolutely. Not just the juries, but this judge, Tan mm. Ta- 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 yeah. Ikram, and, mm. I mean... He, he let these people off for supporting a terrorist group, Hamas, because he said that... Well, he didn't let them off. He said that he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't let them go to prison and so on. Yeah, yeah. But he said that the emotions were high. Yeah. But when he's faced with similar cases of people saying racist or offensive things on WhatsApp, he yeah, does yeah. send them to prison. So I think there's... That a, did yeah. happen. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. right. Record. Let's finish up with a bit of Angela Rayner. Angela Rayner, as I like to call her. Um, her story still rumbles on. Harry Cole, still um, um, at the sun there, says tonight, funny how the conversation turns to how hideously complex UK tax code is once a Labour politician falls <laughs> foul of it. This is a story that everyone from Labour said would go away on Monday. Uh, it was mischief-making by the man on Sunday, mischief-making um, by Lord Ashcroft, who's written a book about it. But it's not, is it? You wouldn't have thought so, but um, having uh, spoken to Keir Starmer's um, spokespeople like, over the last few days, they, uh, they say they have full confidence in, w- in what she has said. That's bad um, news for, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you just wonder at what point do they, 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 try and get, they try and get rid of her when they can't, you know. Well, the they... bad news for her is that Dan Needle, the guy who really has given the needle to uh, Michelle Moan over her tax affairs, he's now taking it on board. And he says tonight in Twitter, did Angela Rayner fail to pay um, capital gains tax on her house? He says the short answer is maybe. This is the thing. There is a, there is a question about whether she owes possibly up to £3,500, yeah. a bit less than that, right. or nothing at all. But I think that it just creates this imagery mm. of the fact that, you know, what she needs to answer these questions. Yeah. She could be Deputy Prime Minister, exactly. you know, by the and end of the year. And she can't just keep ignoring it, you know. She is also, you know, the anti-Thatcherite queen, mm. but she's taken advantage of a Thatcherite policy. She wants to shut it down so that nobody else can take advantage of a Thatcherite policy, and she doesn't want to tell us why. Yeah. And it's not about the numbers. It's about whether or not you, dis, you, you, know, you dis, dislodged yourself from a tax that you should have paid, and you lied about something on an official document. She That's may quite well, serious. She may well get quizzed about this tomorrow. She's making a speech up in the north. Yeah. And uh, there is a moment for questions fr- from the media oh, and yeah. the audience. And you just wonder whether someone is going to ask her that question. It has to be asked. It does. Well, we look forward to that. Look forward to that indeed. Thank you, guys. We'll see you again uh, very shortly. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up, a damning report reveals the police missed glaring red flags that could have stopped killer cop Wayne Cousins. More coming up on this after the break. An inquiry has found Sarah Everard's killer, Wayne Cousins, should have never been given a job in the police force. The report also states that without a radical overhaul of police culture, there is no stopping another Cousins. Joining me now to give us a rundown of the report and today's events is Talk TV correspondent Holly Hudson. Holly, thanks for joining us. It's a terrible, terrible um, day, I think, for the police. It's an awful report. There's so much in it that, that proves how surely somebody should have known about this guy. Oh, I mean, I've got it here. 350 pages of it, and this is only part one of the inquiry. And Mm. the 
ultimate conclusion, as you said, in your very bad day, another day of reckoning, essentially, yeah. with policing again. The ultimate conclusion, Wayne Cousins should never have even been a police officer. So many damning findings in this report. Right. And this is the public inquiry. So in many ways, you might say it's the most serious and significant commissioned by the government, of course, in the wake of Sarah Everard's mm. murder, Pretty Patel. And asking the question, really, how could Wayne Cousins become a police officer? Mm. How could he remain a police officer when he had a history of predatory, abusive behaviour yeah. and a history of so many serious sex crimes we'll yes. get to in a moment. And much of them going back to before he joined the police, right? And then during the time he was at the police, many times reported to superior officers for various um, things and, and awful, you know, um, uh, conflagrations that he caused and terrible um, assaults and, you know, series of flashing and all of that. And nobody did anything. Yeah, a repeated uh, failings, Lady mm. Ailish Angelini, who led the inquiry, said to spot red flags, spot his unsuitability mm. to be a police officer and essentially halt him from being right. a police officer as well. And is the police um, in the position to give any kind of explanation? I mean, I saw the Metropolitan Police put out a tweet today saying how they were so, so sorry. But I'm afraid that's not really good enough. You know, they need to... It's all very well for them to now say, oh, we're going to, you know, tighten up our procedures. But, you know, they need to come forward and they need to name some people who didn't do anything, don't they? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the accountability, isn't it? We mm. have heard them apologise, as you said previously, and we had a statement from um, Mark Rowley, the Met Commissioner, today, saying the report publishes an urgent call to action for all of us in policing. We must go further and faster to earn back the trust of all those whose confidence in policing has been shaken. But... This is the first part of this inquiry. There's right. a second part still to come. Work is underway on mm. that. And that looks at the wider culture of policing as a whole, the broader issues around women in public safety that Sarah Everard's murder, of mm. course, triggered. So there will be more for the police to confront soon. Yeah, exactly right. So tell us a bit more about the history of, of Wayne Cousins and, and, and the, the sort of rap sheet, if you like, of all the things that he's done. So essentially, there are things that we did know in this report, there are things that we didn't know. What we did already know uh, was many of the failings of the police in relation to investigations of indecent exposure, mm. reports of indecent exposure previously. Now, the IOPC, the police watchdog, had flagged those, had noticed those, raised them previously. Kent Police, Met Police, missed opportunities to link cousins to those reports. He used his credit card, he used his car, he was caught on CCTV. Right. They've accepted that previously, they've held people accountable. We also knew Wayne Cousins had a reputation. He was known as the rapist to colleagues. Mm. What we didn't know that emerged in this report today is a number of things. What we didn't expect was just how deviant his behaviour was. He had a preference for extreme porn, tried right. to show colleagues, shared unsolicited images, sent grossly offensive messages. Also, just how flawed and lax recruitment and vetting processes were. Psychological assessments were missed, weren't made. For mm. example, when he joined the Met Police, Lady Ailish Angelini pointed out that the assessment for him becoming a firearms officer was less rigorous than it would have been if he was a member of the public yes. applying to own a firearm. Information was missed, it wasn't shared, checks weren't done, completely discounted in some senses, but crucially the most significant, I think, Mike, is the emergence today, and this is stuff that, something that we didn't know, this mm. is what we first learned today, how many other alleged sex crimes, offences uh, he's been accused of on top of the rape and murder of Sarah Everard, and they're much more serious yes. than we expected. An attempted kidnap at knife point, the rape of two separate women, a very serious sexual assault against a child, and further indecent mm. exposures. 
eight in total. Yeah. It's so damning for the police. And also, it was hints, were there not today, that, you know, there could be other people that we don't know about. For whatever reason, they may have been attacked by cousins and were too frightened to come forward. Or they might have actually been killed by him. I mean, it's not inconceivable that he's murdered other people, is it? Lady Eilish Angiolini did point out that there may well be more victims. And mm. unless there is this radical overhaul of police vetting procedures, of the recruitment process, which is what she recommended among many other things, mm. there were 16 in total, then yes, another uh, police officer, another Wayne Cousins could be operating in plain sight. Yeah, it really is quite extraordinary because at the end of the day, um, those of us who, who have never worked in the police but have known the police over time, I find it inconceivable because, you know, there are decent police officers. You know, the fact that he was even nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues and they used to have exchanges of, of what would be at the very least described as very tasteless and, and horrid messages about other women. Just horrendous. And, you know, clearly that's a culture inside the police. Yeah, an interesting point again that Lady Eilish Angelini highlighted and made here is that while he wasn't wholly a product of the environment, the culture of policing, it did help his deviant nature, his deviant behaviour and his misogynistic views to flourish. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, Holly, thank you very much indeed uh, for that rundown. That's a very, very large and an incredibly complex report. I'm joined now uh, by artist and violence against women and girls prevention campaign, Natashmir Owen, and broadcaster and barrister, uh, Andrew Eborn. Um, Tashmir, let me come first to you. Um, this is a terrible story. I can't imagine really anyone ever seeing any part of this story all the way through the years that Wayne Cousins worked at the police and not just hang their heads in shame. I mean, I would expect an organisation like the Metropolitan Police to just have a mass resignation kind of wave and just have loads of people hold up their hands and say, because of what I didn't do, this happened. I agree with you. I agree with you. Unfortunately, um, I hate to say it, but I really do believe they are beyond reform. Um, what we are seeing repeatedly, the gaslighting, the obfuscation, each and every time exposes the systemic nature of the rot across the UK and the police force. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the rap sheet, and the number of red flags. I mean, the one perhaps the most ridiculous for me is the, the individual, the member of the public who gave the police the name of the, 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 the type of car he was driving, the colour of the car, the registration number of the car. He had seen him driving around literally naked below the waist. They didn't yes. even bother to question him and they just dismissed the investigation. Yes. Uh, today I learned that the inspector who investigated theoretically, this allegation um, worked with Wayne Cousins' brother. They were in the same unit. Mm. And he just brushed it aside. Yeah. Andrew, let me bring you in. I mean, Tashmir says she can't imagine uh, that this can be in any way fixed, that the police is now endemically just tarnished with this kind of thing. And let's face it, it's not the only case. No, I'm... It happens to be the worst case, and it's awful. But do you agree with her? I mean, can they reform the police? Well, I think one, one of the most shocking things, Mike, is the evidence, which uh, they basically said was astonishing. One of the statements to the inquiry in 2022 is that even if they'd known about his history, mm. 
even if they'd known about the horrendous things we've now discovered, they would have still recruited him under that policy. Uh, it's an extraordinary report, I mean, several pages, but on page 213, they make recommendations about the change in the recruitment and vetting process. And they make it absolutely clear that if there's any suggestion of any sexual impropriety or whatever, they should stop the recruitment process straight away. Um, that's the concerning thing is there's a lot of history about this particular case. Um, but looking at the way they do this, and I always say, look, trust comes in on foot, but leaves yeah. on horseback. And anything, there are 46,000 Met officers, the vast majority of which are brilliant at what they do, and they have all sorts of things. I know we, we talk about enforcement and so on and so forth. But this particular case is horrendous. And it's not the only one, yeah. obviously. As we, and there's well, that's the, the third part of the report. And, and Tashmir, let me come back to you, because we know that there are many uh, police officers who are still in the force who have been convicted of a series of different crimes, some of them sexual, some of them drug-related, some of them domestic violence-related. And yet the police, under Sir Mark Rowley, who said that he was going to clear out the, 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 the mess, hasn't done anything, has he? No, no. Um, this isn't an anomaly, unfortunately. Only yesterday we heard about the failings um, that led to the brutal murder of Emma Caldwell in yes. Scotland. Only last week we had Cliff... Um, Mitchell, the PC who had been, he had allegations of sexual assault against his name before yeah. he joined the Met due to him not being prosecuted for it. They did not feel it was something they needed to consider. Mm. Incredible. Andrew, um, what can they do? To, well, re to the, replenish their, uh, the loss of trust. Because... Well, the first thing they need to do is absolutely root out. There's obviously going to be more cases. Right. Um, what this will do is open the floodgates. Right. I mean, what they've said is, is that they will change the rules so that if they discover somebody has been found guilty of a particular crime, yes. they will be immediately suspended. Yes. Which at the moment, incredibly, they're not. I, it's bizarre. As I say, right? go back to that horrendous statement. So if you're found guilty of rape in the yes. police office, uh, as a police officer, you are not immediately sacked. It's a crazy system. So they I mean, need to look at that sort of stuff. Isn't it? But also, as I say, these sexual offences, and I go back to what we were saying beforehand, uh, any individual identified as having a conviction or caution for sexual events should be rejected during police vetting. That should happen already. Yeah, right. It doesn't. Right. And that's the shocking thing about it. Mm. And that, to me, was the most horrendous thing. The evidence that in 2022 that even if they'd known about the history, he could still have been recruited, mm. for me, is just appalling. Yeah. What we need to do is to root everything out. There will be other issues which will come, come to a forefront. What the police need to do to restore trust, if they can, yeah. is act really, really quickly, root out all the evil that's in the police, mm. make sure you get the good in there, and make sure you have a much more rigorous vetting procedure. Yeah, I think so. Um, Andrew, thank you very much indeed for the moment. Tashmir as well, appreciate your time. Um, a horrendous story. We'll be talking more about it uh, as we go through this particular show. Um, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You'll get my view uh, on this cousin's guy very shortly. But also, uh, up next, we're going to be looking at an issue close to Scotland's heart, whiskey, and why slashing tax on the spirit is a win for everyone. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. There have been many dark days for the police in this country over recent years, and I'm afraid today will count as one of the most ghastly and horrific in the entire history of the service that is supposed to be sworn to protect us. 
A report published today laid bare the depravity and the sheer brutality that lay at the heart of Wayne Cousins' personality. A personality that was clearly unfit to be a serving police officer and a personality that hid a literal powder keg of sexual criminality and sadism. Wayne Cousins was, and is, in the parlance of the tabloid press, a beast. He was sentenced last year to a full life term for the kidnapping, rape, torture and murder of Sarah Everard, an innocent woman who was coaxed into his car, convinced that he was going to take her home as she walked across London's Clapham Common one dark night in 2021. Today we learned why Cousins should never have been anywhere near a police warrant card, which he used to persuade her to accompany him. And his history of sexual deviancy was said to have been so explicit and detailed that there are now questions about how he was ever able to join the police. Despite his history of sexual offending dating back nearly 20 years before he murdered Sarah, he joined the Kent Police in 2006. He was reported to superior officers eight different times for indecent exposure, but continued working as a result of inadequate and lethargic investigations. Today we learned of more of his terrible crimes. A very serious sexual assault of a child, barely into her teens when he was in his early 20s, an attempt to kidnap a woman at knife point when he was only 23, the rape of two women and indecently touching a man in a bar, and two more subsequent rapes of a woman at a singles night and another under a bridge in London. The rap sheet goes on and on. Lady Elish Angeloni, who published the report today, says we can't be sure there are not a lot of other victims, some who may not have come forward and others that he may have even killed. The whole story is horrific. In 2015, a member of the public reported having seen a man driving around Kent with his private parts exposed. He provided the make, the colour and the registration of the car. Cousins was identified as the keeper of the car, but the investigation was closed before anyone even spoke to him. We know his colleagues had a nickname for him, the rapist. This man operated in plain sight for years, a danger to the public with a police warrant card. It literally beggars belief. We are so, so sorry. Those are the words of the police today. They'd have been better off saying nothing. Now, let me show you something that caught my eye, and it's this terrifying moment of a Leeds fan falling from the top tier of the stand at Stamford Bridge during celebrations after their opening goal in Wednesday night's FA Cup clash. Medical personnel rushed to the scene quickly, and the fan was taken to hospital. And incredibly, it's the second time in a month such an incident has happened. A Maidstone fan fell from the top tier and onto the Ipswich fans below as the travelling supporters celebrated the non-league side taking the lead against Championship High Flyers Ipswich on Saturday. Absolutely unbelievable stuff. Incredible. Now it's time for what my producer has decided to call happy hour, because for once I'm talking about something that should make me happy, whiskey. I've got some scotch to try in a moment, but not before I've waded through the drama, get it, around uh, Jeremy Hunt's budget next week. Polling by the Scotch Whiskey Association found that more than two-thirds of Scots want the Chancellor to cut taxes for the whiskey industry. And I'm joined now by Director of Strategy at the Scotch Whiskey Association, Graham Littlejohn. Graham, welcome to the Independent Republic. Either Good way. to see you. Uh, we've got a lovely array of, uh, of different scotch here. Tell us first of all about the, the duty that is paid on scotch whisky and what you think Jeremy Hunt might do next week, if anything. 
Quite simply, uh, the tax on Scotch whisky in the UK is the highest in the G7 developed economies. It is double the average across the EU. It right. is far too high. Right. So we've been calling on the Chancellor to cut duty next week in his budget. It would only be the fifth time in the last hundred years that duty has been cut on Scotch right. whisky. So it's an opportunity that doesn't come along very often. Mm. And it's one the Chancellor should seize with both hands. Because it's still one of Britain's biggest exports, isn't it, Scotch? I mean, Absolutely. Last year, £5.6 billion worth of Scotch whisky exported to 180 countries around the world. Yeah. 43 bottles of Scotch whisky are exported from Scotland every single second. Yeah. Now think about that. Every second? Every single wow. second. And th this is an industry which has been 500 years and more in mm. the making, it, but now it's a global, uh, it's a global iconic industry. It's enjoyed by uh, millions of people yeah. around the world, but we tax it very heavily here at home, and mm. we should address that in the budget next week. Yeah, and we've got some, uh, I've got a glass here in front of me. Um, I'm not quite sure what's in it, but I'm assuming some of it will be whiskey. I hope not all of it is, or else the second hour of the show is going to be very interesting. Well, this is a delicious <laughs> uh, Scotch whiskey highball. Uh, yeah. It blends a Scotch whiskey uh, with a bit of ginger ale. Okay. Um, very simple cocktail. Uh, less than two units of alcohol in that. But the bizarre thing about the, uh, the duty system which the Chancellor has employed is that despite the fact that this contains less alcohol than your typical pint of beer or cider, it's taxed four times more. Wow. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed as well. And does that affect the retail sales in bars as well as in restaurants and not just in sort of off sales? It puts the industry at a competitive disadvantage um, it, when the tax level is, is so high, yeah. so exorbitant. Right. Um, it does put the industry at a competitive disadvantage. We need Scotch whisky to, to be treated more fairly in the yeah. tax system. And the Chancellor has an opportunity to do that yeah. next week. This is a very refreshing it's drink. It's Moorish. It's very Moorish and it tastes, it's almost like, it reminds me back to my, my childhood days of drinking ginger beer. Uh, which in those days wasn't alcoholic, of course. Well, people but it are, doesn't taste very strong either. People are enjoying Scotch whisky in different ways in cocktails like this, but also traditional drams like we have here. Yes. You can enjoy Scotch whisky in lots of different ways. And that's the, the benefit of having a world-class spirit mm. uh, like Scotch whisky. It's very versatile. You can have it in any way you want. Yes. But people are paying over the odds for it because of the budget. Uh, and because it's of also the become something of a, um, I don't know, I'm going to say cottage industry, but I mean, as well as all of the big brands that we know about, you know, and the, and the big distillers. There's a lot of smaller, you know, like Speyside and, and, you know, different parts of the country doing it now, right? Absolutely. There are 147 operating Scotch whisky distilleries now all over Scotland. It's an important manufacturing industry with all the, the bottling halls in the central belt, but importantly, in the rural and island mm. communities, this, this, uh, the industry uh, is a vital sector for those parts of the country, right. which have fewer economic opportunities. And that's why we need to support it. That's the opportunity the Chancellor has next week. Yeah. Now, I've got another little glass over here, which mm. I'm just going to reach over to get, because this is a wee nip, uh, I presume, of, a, wee um, dram. a wee dram of one of these bottles here. Is that the COP26 Limited Edition? This is the COP26 Limited Edition. We made this specially for COP26 in yes. Glasgow. This could be uh, the only good thing that came out of COP26. <laughs> we made, <laughs> made it specially for that. Only 900 bottles were mm. made. Uh, very exclusive. All the world leaders who came to Glasgow got a bottle mm. to take away with Oh, them. that's nice. And I don't know what you're getting there, Mike, but maybe some apple, maybe some cinnamon, yeah. a bit of vanilla. A little bit smoky, maybe? A little bit smoky at the end. Absolutely good nose there, Mike, because mm. uh, there's a bit of peated whiskey in that as well. Yeah. And it, that gives you the little smoky flavour at the mm. end. Very nice. And so, I mean, as a general rule, it used to be that the Chancellor would get up with a glass of scotch. But, of course, those days are gone. That's probably politically not the acceptable thing to do anymore. But in those days, we were a much more wealthy country, weren't we? It, it would be a good omen if Jeremy Hunt did <laughs> uh, go to the dispatch box next week with a dram. Ken Clark 
was the last mm. chancellor to do it in 1996. And do you know what he did then? He cut duty on Scotch whisky. There you go. So he was on your side in those days. Um, what do you actually expect to happen, though? I mean, do you, I mean, Jeremy Hunt needs to get some people on side. He wants to try and make friends, I guess, on the, on the on his budget statement. Well, I mean, he's got a lot of people he's got to help out. Well, as you know, um, the Chancellor keeps the budget very close to his chest. Um, but we've been saying cut duty because you get more revenue and you actually help to further reduce inflation. The 10% yeah. increase on duty, which the Chancellor implemented in August last year, has actually lost the Treasury £100 million pounds right. in the last six months. Cutting duty in 2015, the last time it happened, increased revenue by £100 million in the first year. Yes. So you can raise revenue by cutting duty next week, and yeah. that's what you should do. Right. And are there any sort of new countries that are uh, importing more scotch now than, than they did, say, five, ten years ago? Yeah, absolutely. America's always been, uh, for the last 20 years, has been the biggest market by value, but there's a lot of growing markets in Asia-Pacific in particular. India is a massive market for right. Scotch whisky. can get bigger if the UK agrees a trade deal with India in the coming weeks. We mm. hope they do that because it would reduce tariffs on Scotch whisky, make it easier to import it into India. China is becoming a very important yeah. market for whisky now. It was £2 million 20 years ago. It's £200 million wow. now. So, Huge opportunities for Scotch whisky, but it has to be made here at home. Yes. We need to support it here so we can be a global export into the future. Incredible. Great to see you. Thank you, Graham. Well, we wish you luck with next week. We'll see what happens in the budget. Graham Littlejohn there, Director of Strategy of the Scotch Whisky Association. Uh, coming up uh, in the next hour, of course, on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, more than a month after her abdominal surgery, no one has seen or heard from the Princess of Wales, which begs the question, where is she? That and an awful lot more coming up in the next hour. Stay tuned. And welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Granby with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up in this hour, Vladimir Putin's nuclear threat to the West. Keep your troops out of Ukraine. We bring you an exclusive report from the front line in Kharkiv. And wild conspiracy theories are swirling amongst the chronically online uh, as they ask, where is Kate Middleton? Plus, Pepper politicians, two lawmakers dressed as pigs, stage a protest in the land down under. There can be few things less edifying than watching the cringeworthy post office drama unfolding before our very eyes. Even worse, perhaps, though, than the scandal itself, which victimised innocent people, imprisoned those who were not guilty of any crime, and ruined the lives of thousands, is watching the callous disregard those in charge had for anyone but themselves. In many ways, the televised post office inquiry this month has proven itself to be a scandal all of its own. The post office scandal, scandal, perhaps. Although the difference, of course, between this than the original Mr Bates versus the post office, is that in this one, there are no heroes, no good guys. Instead, all we've got are a load of overblown suits who appear to be no use at their jobs and filled instead with a kind of bitterness and pettiness you'd expect from a group of rejected Love Island contestants. Let's take Henry Staunton. He's the one who was chairman of the post office until January of this year when he was fired by business secretary Cammy Badenoch. Since then, he has been on a one-man mission to paint himself as the victim of some kind of horrific personality clash. First up, he gave an interview to the Sunday Times where he attempted to smear the government with claims that he had been told to slow down compensation payments to the real victims of the scandal, the sub-postmasters, a claim he has thus far not managed to back up. But how about this? 
The latest revelation about the man is that he actually lobbied to double the pay of the chief executive, even as the Horizon Compensation Scheme was faltering and the company descended into chaos. And this was no poorly paid minimum wage either. The current chairman, Nick Reid, has earned £1.4 million over the past two years. He's not looking for any Red Cross parcels anytime soon. But apparently, he was threatening to resign if his pay was not increased. This entire brazen culture of greed is bad enough, even if the company was being run well. But it looks even worse when you look at the amounts of money being paid by the sub-postmasters who were wrongly accused of stealing. Take Tim Brentnell, who was wrongly convicted over shortfalls from his till. He said this week that his post office made profits of just under £20,000. Another victim, Tony Downey, fled the country after he was bankrupted. He earned just 26000 a year from his branch. Jaws have been literally dropping at the inquiry all week. And it's no wonder, because these suits have been stealing a living for years. Perhaps it's time they gave back some of their bonuses before we go any further. Scandalous, shameful and utterly unfit for any job. Now, later on in the show, we will bring you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at a story from The Sun newspaper. And, of course, it is all about Kate and where she is and what she's doing. I miss Kate so much, uh, is what it says. And we'll be bringing you more details of exactly what is being said about the royals uh, in this particular week and in this particular night and in tomorrow's papers as well. But... Hounded by online rumours regarding his wife's disappearance from public life, Prince William returned to royal duties today following an unexpected withdrawal from his godfather's memorial service. The sudden cancellation of that appearance on Tuesday led to feverish speculation online regarding the health and well-being of the Princess of Wales. So 66 days since her last public sighting, the whole nation is now asking, where is Kate? And who are we going to call to discuss all the latest lines? Well, of course... It is the one and only host of the To Die For daily podcast. It's Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. I miss Kate so much. His words, um, I think a lot of people would say they miss Kate so much as well. And uh, even though we knew she wouldn't be seen till after Easter, people are starting to ask a lot of questions. I feel like somewhere out there, Mike, the Princess of Wales is wearing her... Oh, most comfiest, el- oldest sweatpants right. while watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Very possibly like she's so. got a co- maybe she has a cocktail in her hand, <laughs> but I think that she's probably eating up some of these very bizarre, over the top, incredibly crazy conspiracy theories, and thinking, you know what, I'm going to sit back and enjoy my break from from the crazy. Yes, I think that's probably true. But in all seriousness, you know, there's still not really an explanation as to what happened the other day when William ducked out of that uh, memorial service that he was supposed to be doing. They issued a statement saying that she was recovering well, hinting that it was nothing to do with her, but it's still unexplained. And I think a lot of people are wondering if there will ever be an explanation. Well, you know, I do think a lot of this has been has started on X, which to me has become like a dumpster fire when it comes yeah. to um, no accountability. Uh, and I think a lot of people are just trying to stir the pot because you, as you've reiterated multiple times, we don't expect to see her until after Easter. And if we're being serious. I think when you stir the pot on X, what you're doing is you're increasing the risk of jeopardizing the princess's safety 
you know, when they start these stupid campaigns, someone might be inspired to do something asinine on social media, yeah. uh, you know, to try to get clout. You know, what, are they going to stalk around their home? I, I don't know. But I, I feel like it jeopardizes the princess's safety for people to start these hashtag trends and all of this stuff. We did hear from the palace today here in the States, page six received a rare response from Catherine's spokesperson saying Kensington Palace made it clear in January the timelines of the princess's recovery and we'd only be providing significant updates. That guidance stands. However, they did say she is doing well. Yeah. Um, so obviously they're a little irritated by the fuss that's being made on social media over Catherine's whereabouts. Yes, it can't be easy, I suppose, for the family. It's a difficult time. You know, we know that um, the king is still getting treatment for his cancer. We know that she's recovering from whatever it is that, that ails her since the abdominal surgery. William is doing the best that he can. It's all a very strange time. There was a terrible, tragic death uh, in the week as well um, of, of one of the, uh, um, the daughter, well, the son-in-law, I should say, of Princess Michael of Kent. Prince Andrew uh, smiling at, uh, at the end of yes. that, looking as if he had got the, you know, the cat that got the cream. You know, the trouble is, no matter what you say about the royal family, Kinsey, people want to know about what they're doing. No, it's true. And they are a, valu a very valuable asset. Um, but can I just tell you that I feel like they did open themselves up a little more when it came to their health. Uh, I felt like it was a privilege to have some of the additional details that we got. Some people are blaming those additional details for the expectation of more. Uh. But if I'm being honest with you, I think it's Harry and Meghan that have overshared yes. over the last few years that have made our... Uh, our expectations unrealistic when it comes to the amount of information we receive about working royals who yeah. are notoriously mysterious. And that is part of the sparkle. That is part of the reason that we admire them so much and, and, and are so interested in them because there are typically so many question marks around them and what goes on behind the scenes in real life. Absolutely right. And we got a pretty good insight, didn't we, into Harry uh, when that ruling came out yesterday uh, in his £1 million lawsuit against the Home Office. By the way, I haven't actually used this line yet, but I should have done it yesterday. Knowing what we know about the Home Office, losing every single case that they have against anyone, including a whole bunch of asylum seekers, um, he is the first person uh, to have lost to the Home Office. The Home Office have finally won a case and they've won it against Harry, which is pretty funny. But, you know, here's a guy who showed his true colours when he said, by the way, uh, I want to know exactly who it was that tried to cut off my security, demanding to know the name of the person so that I don't know what he wanted to do with them, but as if he was like the sort of the feudal king of a country and all serfs had to bow down to him and do exactly as he said. I felt like that was an interesting takeaway, but also to to claim that you were in more jeopardy than Princess Diana, yeah. your mother. I mean, what did you think when you came to like the gun capital of the world? Right. I mean, we're notorious for our gun issues here in America. You literally pursued us. You chose this country. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was interesting for him to say he felt like he was in more jeopardy than his mother was. Uh, first of all, I've never seen the paparazzi surround Harry and Meg. They had to use stock photos of a Harry Potter event in their Netflix documentary. Yeah. And second of all, like you've, you've chosen a, a very peculiar place to live if, yes. you're, if you're concerned about your safety. Well, I pointed out yesterday that the number of people killed in gunshot incidents in America last year was 40,000. Yes. 
you know, and he's claiming that he doesn't feel safe bringing his children to Britain uh, where there are hardly any gunshot incidents at all. And the Sun headlines this morning um, very, um, very much put it all in perspective, saying that for him to say he was not asking for preferential treatment was really laughable because it's all he's ever done. He asked for preferential yeah. treatment everywhere he goes. He wanted preferential treatment from the Queen. He wants preferential treatment from the Home Office and the police. He wants preferential treatment from every uh, event that he, that he attends. He wants to be able to fly on private jets. He doesn't want anybody like us to be able to talk about him unless he gives us permission. Well, you see it in the name Spare in his book title. He is in a constant competition with his brother. And in, and I know that his mother did a little bit of that to him. But when, when he grew up, it was important to her that they were always even uh, because she knew that one day William would be king. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that he's in constant competition, both him and Meghan, with the prince and princess of Wales. And they, they, they were really resentful over the fact that William and Kate got priority. And I think that's part of the reason why they took off. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And as far as um, the future goes, I mean, a lot of people saying he must come back to the UK at some point this year, very possibly to see his father again. Um, there's not much likelihood of him bringing Meghan and the kids, though, I guess. You know, it is my understanding that he would like to bring them, especially solely due to his father's illness. There yeah. was also rumours of him wanting to celebrate uh, the Invictus Games anniversary there with him and his children. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, it's this is not the end of the world. All he has to do is ask for permission. It is a case-by-case -case basis. So if he gives them an appropriate amount of time to determine whether or not him and his family can fly over, there is a very good chance that they are going to say, yeah, actually, that makes yeah. sense. We'll see you at the airport. Yes. So he, it's almost like he's making a big deal out of nothing. They are control freaks. They don't like to tell people ahead of time what their plans are. They don't like to ask for permission. And that's no. what the ultimate problem is. Well, this is the problem. Uh, it's all about him, isn't it? It's all about them. It's all about attention-seeking. They don't like to be out of the limelight, but they don't like to be in it either. So it's the sort of, you know, quandary of the, of the ages, isn't it? It is. But, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this, this article that's trending here in the States from The Wrap, this industry outlet. Um, but, but they talk about Archwell kind of in chaos, right. their, their production company, their charity company. And when they break down the weaknesses of the company, they say that it's control issues, employee turnover, a lack of experience, yeah. and exhausted people that were mentoring them and counseling them, saying, like, life is too short to deal with you and all of your drama. Yeah. But I think a lot of the, the issue is, is control. It's their way or the highway. And they don't have the experience to back up. They don't have the experience or the knowledge to back up what they're insisting yeah. that, that is theirs or, or what they want. Right. And presumably the children, who are always older than I think they are, are going to have to be starting to go to school at some point soon, aren't they? They do go to school, yes. Yeah. And how do they manage that then? Because presumably they should be complaining that everybody's trying to take pictures of them all the time. Apparently not. Yeah, I have not seen a picture of Megan and Archie in years. The, mm. But there was one shot of him coming out of school, her holding him coming out of school years ago. Right. Um, but I have not seen one since. No, interesting that they can have a bit of privacy when they want it then, I guess. Kinsey, good yeah. to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield there reporting into us from Hollywood, uh, where, by the way, on uh, currently on X, as it's now called, Twitter, there is a trending subject, Harry and Megan are a joke. 
uh, which indeed they are. Now, though, uh, Russian President Mad Vlad has threatened the West with nuclear Armageddon if NATO troops are deployed on the ground in Ukraine. It comes as Talk TV has been on the front line in Ukrainian uh, parts of the world. Forces have hit back at Russian invaders, but they've issued a desperate plea to the US and Britain to say, we need more help. We spoke about this a little while yesterday, but let's cross live now to Ukraine and catch up with Talk TV's war correspondent, Tom Much, who's on the front line in Kharkiv. Tom, welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, tell us what the state of play is in uh, Kharkiv right now. So I have just been out on the front lines in this region. I got back a couple of hours ago and we were embedded with a Ukrainian artillery unit that was facing a Russian assault. Now, they'd initially warned us, look, it's going to be quite hairy. We don't have enough shells. But then about half an hour before we got there, they actually received an emergency contingent. And so they basically had us lined up behind the gun. They fired it about 10 times and they managed to actually, as they showed us and told us, destroy a couple of income. Russian technical vehicles, as well as some of their troops, effectively stopping an invasion of that small part of territory right then and there. Now, these kind of little skirmishes happen all the time. But the point that they tried to make to me was, look, we're not even asking you to put your own troops in the ground or put your own country people in harm's way. We are just asking for the shells, the ammunition, the weapons that you promised us, you in the US, the UK and the US and the European Union have promised us over all these years that we've been fighting the Russians. We can do the real hard yards ourselves. Yes. And so has something changed then, Tom, in the last, say, six months? I mean, we went into the winter, I suppose, uh, with Russia not necessarily in the ascendance, but we seem to be coming out of the winter months with Russia in a much better position. So, look, the big problem that everyone knows about here is the stalling of aid, particularly the $60 billion that's been tied up in the US Congress endlessly for about six months now. Now, last year, the, the Ukrainians were on the offensive. They've been given what they called a mountain of steel, loads of all these tanks and armoured vehicles and high-powered rocket launchers, and high Mars, et cetera, in order to try and basically take back as much territory as they possibly could. However, they rather underperformed expectations. And so they got to the end of last year in a rather weak position, having used a lot of their firepower up. Now, they expected to have that firepower. The EU promised them a million shells and has delivered much less than half of that. The US promised it would have $60 billion worth of aid and hasn't delivered any of that. So now they find themselves in a position where Russia has its economy really on a war footing. It's importing hundreds of thousands, possibly more than a million shells from North Korea, drones from Iran. And now while you might laugh at those countries as jokes, actually in military terms, this stuff works really well on the battlefield. Mm. And all Ukrainian heroism in the world can't stop an army that is just much better equipped than they are currently. Hence their continuing plea, just give us what we need to finish this job. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the geography of the battle zones now? Is it mostly concentrated in Kharkiv where you are or is it still sort of disparately spread around? So the main fighting is in the east. Most recently it's 
been in the Donbass region, which is just a little bit south of where I am. Mm. That's where the Russians took Avdiivka, which was a major Ukrainian stronghold that had been on the front line actually for 10 years since the original smaller Donbass war broke out in 2014. But it's only just really over the last couple of weeks that much of the epicenter of the fighting has switched also to the Kharkiv region. And so this is probably one of the most difficult areas that the Ukrainians are facing. They are kind of lucky with the geography and the fact that Kupiansk sits on a hill. It has a river uh, running through it and kind of encircling that, the main parts of the city. So there is that sort of defensive terrain advantage. But but the Russians have hundreds of tanks, hundreds of pieces of artillery, and they are just willing to sacrifice their soldiers in the tens of thousands to achieve the objectives that they want. No, of course. Tom, good to talk to you. Look after yourself there. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Much reporting into us from Kharkiv uh, on the front line in Ukraine. You're watching the incredible Independent Republic of Mike Graham coming up after the break. Farmers are taking to the streets in protest against green policy. That's right. They say it's more dangerous to the industry than climate change. More on this right after the break. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Tractors taking to the streets has become a common occurrence across Europe as disgruntlement grows in the agriculture sector and green policy is the big reason for it. A new survey of about 800 farmers has highlighted the main points of fear and frustration in the industry with political intervention a far bigger worry than climate change. Joining me now is market researcher in the brains behind this survey, uh, Mr Nigel Jacqueline. Nigel, Hi. welcome back to the Independent Thank Republic you. of Mike Graham. Thank Good you. to see you. Um, you're a statistician by by trade, I suppose, aren't you? You're yeah. a man that knows a thing or two about uh, crunching the numbers. Yes. Um, we've seen the farmers in Wales beginning to get a bit worked up about some of these net zero demands that are being mm -hmm. made. We've seen, obviously, the French farmers absolutely revolting. We've seen this, the, 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 the same thing happening in the Netherlands. Um, a bit of Dover, I think, the other day as well. What yeah. is it that farmers are mostly angry about in this country? Well, farmers just want to be... Um, left to get on with farming. Yeah. Um, so their main worries are the price they get for their produce and yeah. the cost of their inputs. Right. Um, the weather bothers them, climate change doesn't. No, exactly right. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because we've got governments in Europe which are kind of obsessed with net zero targets and, you know, doing away with certain types of farming, doing away with certain types of um, sort of field management, I suppose, for want of a better word, uh, telling people that, you know, they can't, grow food on certain um, days of the week or they can't yeah. grow food on certain at certain times of the year. And these farms in Europe certainly are saying, well, we can't make a living. I saw yeah. some of the French farmers saying the other day that the prices that they have to sell their produce at mean they can't actually survive. Yeah, most farmers in the UK don't earn very much. There is a small number of large farms and they may well be doing OK. Yeah. But most farmers are on average or mostly below average incomes. Right. And the problem is that you spend the whole year growing stuff and then you sell it, you know, and you've got one chance to, to make your money. It's right. quite a big, risky business. Right. And they're, they're not in it for the love of growing wheat. No, for sure. And if you're selling to big sort of corporate supermarkets and things like that, they're fixing the prices, particularly when it comes to things like eggs and milk yeah. and dairy, um, yeah. cheese presumably as well, and butter, yeah. where they'll just demand to, 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 to take it off your hands. And you don't really have a choice. Yeah, and so kind of at the conference today, there were people from the so office of... What conference was this? Sorry. So it's a better statistics conference about um, climate change, where are we with net zero. Right. So there were 
people like from the Office of Budget Responsibility mm. and from the Climate Change Committee, right. the Bank of England, and then there were people like me and someone else presenting a survey of people. Um, and there's just this big gap mm. kind of between where the people are and where the experts are. Right. The experts are convinced. The head of the Climate Change Committee explained that they'd done really well in reducing um, carbon emissions. Yeah. But basically that's down to uh, stopping coal power stations and going to wind farms. Yes. And that's an easy win. To do the rest, they've got to do really difficult stuff. Yeah. And actually he says they've got to go faster. Um, but the problem is that half of people aren't convinced. And when you talk to farmers, it's really low down yeah. their agenda. Well, this is the thing. I mean, when we talk to um, people in government, whenever I get the opportunity to do so, I always say to them, you know, what exactly is net zero to you? And they can't ever really answer the question. All they can ever say is, well, of course, it's when uh, we offset as, as enough carbon to, to, to make sure that any carbon that's gone into the atmosphere has been, yeah. you know, somehow equalised. And it's like, yeah, well, then what? And if yeah. you say to them, what happens when you get to net zero? They don't really know the answer to that either. I saw Al Gore answering a question the other week where he claimed that as soon as we get to net zero, um, the earth will stop heating up, which is plainly just rubbish. Nonsense, right? Well, it would be nice. I mean, it's just... I don't know. I mean, very, I'd like very, to see a hotter planet. A very narrow, <laughs> a very narrow sort of obsession. Yeah. And it kind of ignores other stuff right. that matters. And the environment doesn't work like that. It's not just about one thing. No. And if you do that, it maybe messes that up, you know. Mm, exactly um, right. And so we've seen as well, a bit of a rowing back by Rishi Sunak, certainly mm. on uh, on the, the oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. We're being told now as well that the electric car kind of revolution is faltering because people are not convinced anymore and they yeah. won't be convinced that it's actually safer to drive an electric car as far as the planet goes because it's not. You know, it creates a huge problem in, in mining areas when trying to put together, um, you know, batteries for cars. It's, it's just ridiculous. So do you think the farmers in this country will get a bit more kind of um, radical, shall we say, and start they have driving around? They have fairly quiet to date, um, certainly in comparison to their EU compatriots. Mm. Um, I think it depends. So the, the election and the politics are quite interesting because... Uh, the survey of the population compared Tories and Labour. So Labour voters were more convinced about climate change mm. um, and they were more comfortable with things like banning uh, diesel and sale of petrol cars yeah. and increasing the price of petrol. Uh, the Tories, Tory voters, those that were still left, were less happy about yeah. that, but they probably are more likely to have um, cars. Yes. So if you throw agriculture into the equation what the experts said is that they haven't yet figured out what they can do mm. in order to enable agricultural emissions to be reduced. Right. And if they do something, um, I mean, one of the issues that comes up is Brexit. It's not very important, but there were three different kinds of red tape. Yes. You've got Brexit. Um, so withdrawing from Brexit is undoing of red tape, different mm. red tape. You've got climate change red tape. Mm. And then you've got all of the other DEFRA stuff. So I think what farmers need is one set of changes yeah. that ends up with helping them... That actually helps them to make money yeah. out of what they do for a business. Yes, yes, because it's a job. Yeah, you would think that that would be straightforward, but sadly not. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. there's too much irrational mm. interventionism. Yeah. And if you go back to this sort of narrow focus, um, uh, it, it and it changes, that's the problem. When we talked about one thing... I mean, the other bit that came out in the conference is that 
in essence, we're exporting our um, carbon emissions, mm. for example, by buying solar panels made in China, yeah. made using coal power. Right. Um, and so really, we're not actually reducing global net emissions. We're just doing it in China. Yeah. And well, exactly. Losing all, our industry. It's all a con. I mean, we call it the net zero con, actually. And you'll find out later on uh, with the world of woke. And yes, another example of exactly how wrong this government has been about all of this. Nigel, thank you very much indeed. That's Nigel Jackson letting us, uh, Jacqueline rather, letting us know uh, what the farming community is saying. Um, we'll bring you more on that throughout the course of the year because it's not going to go away anytime soon. Now, many politicians love to ham it up for the cameras, but I'm not sure many MPs here in the UK would go as far as these two silly sausages down under who were baking the point that the big Aussie supermarkets are greedy pigs. My mate Bob and me are going to be talking about the supermarkets and how to rein them in. We'll have some very interesting material for you. Not quite sure what to make of that, really, but you'd be a bit scared if you saw those in your local supermarket uh, with sausages and bacon falling around all over the place. But there we are. Now, Plague of the Week returns tomorrow night, of course, from 7pm. And did you know about this? Colleague Kellogg's have recommended eating cornflakes for dinner. Watch me try it tomorrow night on Plank of the Week. <laughs> there we go. That is oh, the biggest bowl of cereal. That's the biggest box of cereal I've ever seen. That's serving. Don't knock it. A knife and fork. Yeah, with no milk. Fork and appetit. Don't knock it. It's quite hard to get it on the floor. Oh, Michael. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> When you're done, pass it down. I was going to say, pass it down. That's your dinner. Yeah, it's definitely not as good without milk, by the way. But uh, that's 7 o'clock, of course, tomorrow night. Let's bring the panel back in. Uh, Deputy Political Editor at The Sun, Ryan Saby, political commentator, Candice Holdsworth, and journalist from The Telegraph, Steve Edgington. Uh, welcome back, guys. Um, just talking about a little bit of farming um, there. Um, another group of people who are not happy with the net zero brigade and the net zero restrictions. I mean, that's another problem that we haven't really quite talked about that the government could get over the course of the next few months. Yeah, no, exactly. I think every time that you come up with a net zero policy, you've got to take everyone with you. I think yeah. that's the whole point. And especially with the farming community, you know, that everyone talks about, you know, electric vehicles being yes. brought in. You can't, there's not, it's not much use having electric vehicles when you're trying to play our field if you can't get the power to, no. to go up and down. Well, I mean, what happens if the electric sort of combine harvester runs out of power? You can't just sort of tow it back to the uh, place where you got it from, can you? You have a starving nation most of the time. Well, exactly right. And that's what's happening in France. And that's why there's so many, uh, you know, revolting pe uh, peasant farmers there saying we can't make any money. It's absolutely mm -hmm. and utterly ridiculous. But, you know, um, the, cli the climate change restrictions on people, I think, in Europe have now just become something that they're not willing to put up with anymore. But it's interesting, isn't it, that these protests seem to have been a very European phenomenon, whereas we're only just beginning to see the sort of remnants of that in Britain and yeah. Cardiff, and we've seen some, I think, in Dover recently. Yeah. And finally, we're kind of waking up, our farmers are waking up to, to this populist message. And I think it's fair enough, these net zero policies are impacting people across the continent. Yeah. And their livelihoods are at stake. Right. And, you know, they already have a very difficult job as farmers. They're not making huge amounts of mm. money here. 
And they really do help our communities. Lots of people rely on them. They're a very important part of our country. Yeah. And of course, they have the right to protest. And they, they know these protests all across Europe mm. have had a huge impact on their government. So they can probably do the same they thing have. in the UK. And an awful lot of what the French farmers are protesting about are EU regulations, which, as we heard Nigel saying there, you know, the farmers in this country have been very happy to see the back of. But now they've got net zero sort of restrictions, which are almost as bad. Yeah. Once people start becoming more and more aware of exactly what net zero is going to cost them, they're going to resist it. I mean, even looking at the breakdown of government spending now, mm. and you see the amount of money they're paying on servicing the national debt. Right. I mean, those interest payments, just the interest payments on it. And net zero is going to require huge amounts of borrowing. Yeah. So that's just even more heaped on ordinary mm. people and on future generations. Yeah. It's just completely unviable as it is at the moment. Yeah, it is, absolutely. We've got a few um, stories to look at in the papers uh, coming up. We've also got a few other stories to talk about as well. There's one about a Ukrainian family who apparently decided to head home because they can't find a dentist, which sort of tells you <laughs> all you need to know about the state of play in this country, doesn't it? It does. I mean, you know, you'd rather go back to a war zone where you get better dental care. Yeah. Well, I think dentistry could be a big, big player. It is a massive a problem, big, big isn't it? Factor in the in the, in the election, people get wound up by not being able to see, uh, uh, you know, a dentist yeah. or a GP, and you, it just makes you wonder that people cast their vote differently. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, we've been obsessed for the past week and a half, practically, about something that was said by one Tory MP um, about one London mayor um, about something that happened in the House of Commons last week, which probably should never have happened, all because the SNP decided to try and embarrass Labour. You would think that everything else in the country is working brilliantly. Yeah, but it no. isn't. You, yeah. did a, you did a story earlier tonight, I know, about the immigration numbers. Yeah. And, you know, dentistry is part of this. It's the pressure on yeah. all of these services across the country. Right. 1.4 million visas the Tories handed out last year. Yeah. How, how are uh, things like dentists, the NHS and so on, made yeah. to cope with this amount of people coming in? Right. This story is huge. And again, every single time the, the Conservatives make a pledge on immigration, they break it. And it's no wonder they're doing so badly in the polls right. when record, record, record numbers of people are coming into the country. Yeah. And every time you want to get a dentist appointment or sign up to a new dentist, you see queues round the well, block. Well, we saw that thing in Bristol, didn't we? Where there was only 400 people queuing up for, yeah. for one dentist surgery. And it's interesting, you know, with NIMBYism, people sort of always talk about it disparagingly. But in the area where I lived, there was a campaign to stop the building. I think it was like a couple of thousand new houses. Right. Because they said they're not going to be building any more GP surgeries. Right. There's not going to be any more schools. The roads are going to yes. be congested. And those are actually rational concerns. I mean, I mean, I personally, I'm in favour of more house, house building, but I can totally get why people would say, if the population grows mm. and we have no growth in those services, it's just going to get worse and worse But and also worse. There's, there's other aspects as well. I mean, parts of the southeast of England, Sussex and Kent in particular, where they're building more sort of housing, some of which is affordable, some of which is less affordable. They don't increase, increase the roads uh, yes. at all. No. They don't make for more road capacity. So the roads are now completely jammed yes. in places where they never used to be. Yeah, and they don't build any more schools, no. so nobody knows where to put their kids. It's just ridiculous. There should yeah. be restrictions. I think there are some kind of restrictions or allowances for every time you do build mm. a new housing estate yeah. or you build you know, a, a new village that you have to have one or two GP mm. surgeries. You have to have all the local amenities. Yes. And that should just be part well, of it. Well, you would think. Mm -hmm. well, we, but where story. are we going to get the doctors from? We can't get any GP. Well, that's the other thing. I don't understand why we can't train doctors in this country. Well, those are all the caps that they put on them yeah. years ago. That would be the BMA you're talking yes. about. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, who kiboshed their own business. Yes. Incredibly. So, and there are plenty of people who want to get into medical school mm. and can't get a place. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we saw that story early in the week, uh, Stephen Millam, 
up in um, uh, the north of England, the, the little town where they were supposed to be in receipt of 40 asylum seekers and they ended up objecting. That was a town where they've got one GP and they've got no dentists. And it's not just the pressure on services, and you rightly point out that this is a huge crisis across many small towns and across the north of England and so on, where they're housing all these migrants, these asylum seekers. Yes. But it's also the impact on local communities and the cohesion. And if you're like someone who's lived in that community for your whole life and, and you've, your family have been there for generations and so on, and suddenly you've got all of these young African and Asian men coming into your community and you're an old lady mm. and they're speaking a different language and they're hanging out, right. hanging out in groups. They're not allowed to work, for example. So right. That's incredibly intimidating for right. many people, and quite quite rightly, they, they're worried and scared about those those mm. issues. So I think that it's not just about the economic impacts. We've got to also think about the cultural impacts. Yes, and we didn't really get a chance to talk about it earlier, but I mean, the, the amount of money now, 15 million a day, which has jumped from what, what it was, which was about seven, um, to put these people in hotels, it's just it's ridiculous. Yeah, I think a lot, there's a lot of political posturing on on this issue as well, because it looks like a lot of the uh, the hotels that were being used by, by asylum yeah. seekers, they, they, they've all gone by the wayside. And it, seems, it just seems like some of them are sort of in marginal seats that uh, Conservative <laughs> MPs hold. So yes. uh, you do wonder if something's going on there. But it, it is a major issue. Mm. You know, up to, you know, £6 million, £7 million, £15 right. million pound a, a week. But that's it. I mean, you couldn't run a business like that, could you? How much is it this year? Oh, it's £15 million. What was it last year? Seven. Oh, great. OK. And where yeah. are we getting this money from? Yeah. I mean, those are wildly different, differing numbers. Yes. How can you budget for that properly? How can you plan for that? Right. It's interesting as well that the, the, the government have very much been boasting about, oh, well, we've got numbers down a third on the small boats issue. Yeah. But the Home Office have come out recently and admitted that the majority of these cases, of the reason that it went down a bit last year was because of bad weather. Yeah. And now the weather has improved, cases have shot up again. Right. And again, this, all this stuff is about... The Conservative Party trying to sort of reconcile it's just all of massaging their massaging figures, isn't it? Right, exactly. It's all they're doing. It's political posturing ahead of the election. Yeah, exactly right. It's like claiming victory for something that isn't anything to do with you. Mm. One thing that is quite, that has seemed to have worked, is these bilateral deals. So they've yeah. put so much emphasis on Rwanda. Mm. Actually, they should actually mm. spend more time doing deals with, I know they've done one with Albania that seems to be pretty successful. Yeah and doing them with other countries. Yeah, absolutely right. A couple of uh, closer-to-home stories. The school has changed its uniform rules to allow pupils to wear fake eyelashes due to mental health considerations. This is crazy, I assume though. this is just for the girls, but it could not be... It might be for everyone. But, but so, uh, you, you must know the author Abigail Schreier. She wrote that yeah. book about gender-affirming care. Well, her next one is called Bad Therapy. Yeah. And it's about how we're making even the most minor things for kids into mental health issues. Mm. So you're a little bit unhappy with not yeah. being able to wear your fake eyelashes, but it's actually a mental health right. issue. I mean, they're not going to be resilient if we treat them like this. No, because this originally was the school that actually outlawed lashes and this would be uh, additionally put on your eyes. Um, and then it caused some kind of crisis with so many girls that they had to put it to lift the, the ban. Yeah, it? it is. I mean, they're probably worried about their appearance and they're worried about how you know, it's going to be on Instagram. But years ago, you probably would have dealt with it. But now right. it's sort of like, well, you're in distress. OK, I can't have you yeah. in distress. Also, I'm sorry, when I went to school, you know, fake eyelashes were not allowed. And not just because no. it was school, but you, if you wore a shirt that was the wrong colour, you know, you got detention. If you wore shoes that were not the right kind of shoes, you got detention. Yes. You couldn't wear a button-down shirt, when it's, you know, all of that. And now you're saying, well, eyelash, fake eyelashes are OK. No. There's an issue also with the, the, the children. I say children, they're teenagers. Yeah. You know, bit looking like they're too grown up as well. So if yeah. they're you know, walking home at night or walking, yes. walking back through, you know, through the town centre mm. in the afternoon, yeah. you don't know what sort of attention they're going to attract. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That is we, not good. But we've also seen a huge rise in the numbers of anxiety and depression among young people. Yeah. And that is a real problem. And I think that they're 
these things. What do you think is causing it? Well, I think partly it's this. Yeah. And, you know, I think that these things are very antisocial and mm. can cause you to become very sort of self-aware yeah. of your image on Instagram. But this is it. It brings like us back to that suggestion of banning phones in schools, which some schools do and mm. other schools don't so much. But, I mean, you can't stop them from getting on the you phone. If you ban them in schools, it's irrelevant because right. they can go home and look at this stuff anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a sort of decision for parents, and I think it's a really tough one where... You know, you don't want your children to be exposed to terrible things on the internet, but at the same time, the, ch the children will feel very kind of left out if they don't have the phone yeah. and their friends yeah. do and so on. Yeah, yeah. Was, sorry. What I was going to say, it was interesting the, the, the other week when the government came out with the new guidance on mobile phones. Most head teachers and most teachers thought it was a, a non-issue because right. a lot of school children, they do hand their phone in or they, they turn it off when right. they go in. Very rarely does it seem to go off in, in class. So actually, it was a slight non-issue, but it's what they do outside of, yes. you know, half past eight. I think that's the problem. And when they yeah. talk about sort of, you know, cyberbullying and that kind of thing, it probably doesn't happen during school time. It happens at night. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. It's difficult. You know, as a parent, do you just completely shield your children from all this stuff? Or do you teach them how to navigate it? Because if this is their new reality, then they have to, yeah, to I do think that. You have to, I think you have to let them get on with it. I think you can't ban them from it. You can't shield them from it. I don't even think schools should ban phones. They should just incorporate them into whatever they're doing during the course of yes. the day. Yeah. And say, well, you can use it, you know, in your lesson as long as you're doing this with it. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, it's a bit Luddite, I think, to try and pretend that mm. they're not going to use them. Yeah, how to use social media more wisely. I mean, I remember my mother had a really good chat with me when I was about 14 about boys yeah. and boundaries and saying no. And it, was, it really served me well. Yeah. It really did. It was a good chat. She knew what my life was like. She knew what I'd be facing. Instead yeah. of like locking me away in my room, right. she was like, I it want doesn't you work. to take this approach. Yeah, you know? exactly so, right. Yeah. One more just before we break. A couple have been ridiculed for trying to recruit a live-in babysitter who would have to pay them £400 for the privilege. This is an advert that was put up um, on Facebook, was it? Um, and looking for somebody to occupy a spare room and do the babysitting and pay some rent into the bargain. I don't think they've quite understood the, the exchange of, uh, of talents here, have they? Well, the, the London rental market is so bad, I can imagine yeah. they could actually find someone. Yeah to do this. I mean, rents are so expensive and it's £400 a month is, is like right. incredibly cheap. Yeah, but if you're working, you can't really be a babysitter, can you? Well, I suppose they're working, I think, between 6 or 3 and 6pm or something right. every day. And But they're not, that's the weird thing was, it, the advert implied that they weren't even allowed to live in the home at weekends. Right. Yeah. Where are they meant to go? Yeah. That's mad, isn't it's it? amazing what chances some landlords will take. Yeah. I don't know if, know if you remember years ago when there were all those exposés on landlords offering free rent in exchange for, yes. you know... A little, a little yes. helping out in yes. the bedroom. It's free rent, but you have to share my bed yeah. and that sort of thing. I thought that was yeah. technically an offence, actually, but, you know... <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is now. They have cracked down on that. I think they have cracked down on it. Also, you get those ridiculous stories every now and again of somebody selling, like, a shed or a garage yeah. or something in Mayfair for 200,000 quid and you park one car in it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Just mad, absolutely mad. Well, we'll have a look at some more of the front pages as we go. My favourite story, actually, today about um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's son and Matt Hancock. Got to get into that. Uh, you're watching the one and only Independent Republican Mike Graham. Coming up next, we're off to the world of woke. Plus, we will have a look at those papers. Stay exactly where you are. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Woke. 
Now, anyone who's a regular viewer to the Independent Republic will know my views on the eco-nuttery that has afflicted much of this government's policies on the green agenda, all for the holy grail of the net zero crusade. We've got the fines you pay for polluting the air in your car that do nothing about the air quality, but plenty for the coffers of the state. We've got the recycling nonsense that results in less recycled goods and more rubbish in the landfills. And we've got the politicians and virtue-signalling celebs who whiz around in private jets and helicopters all the while telling us to take the train. Hypocrisy, ladies and gentlemen, is the name of the game. And today, it is no different. The climate change fanatics have come up with a new word for the destruction of the planet. This is this, ecocide. Not content with calling people who disagree with them climate deniers, evoking a kind of holocaust-like alarm into the argument, they now want to use a word that sounds worryingly like something you could be charged with criminally. So far, they've managed only to accuse Britain's biggest power station, though, of the crime. Drax, up in North Yorkshire, is currently involved in one of the least environmentally friendly methods of producing energy. And it's all in the name of the environment. In an effort to go green, Drax stopped burning local coal and changed over to wood pellet fuel because it's better for the climate, they said. Trouble is, the wood pellets come from primary and old growth forests in British Columbia. And three different eco-campaigning groups are accusing them of exploiting rare and irreplaceable woodlands and unique habitats with ecological functions. Drax insists that all heirloom fuel that they use comes from sustainable sources. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But you can't regrow forests that have been there for centuries in anything less than, well, centuries. And it doesn't help that the wood is transported from Canada on diesel-powered ships, all of which makes a mockery of the fact that we are now subsidising the entire shebang. Environmentalists, including Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, now argue that cutting down forests is no way to save the planet no matter what the government says about how bioenergy is the future. One said, the evidence is clear. Bioenergy fails on every metric. It fails to secure our energy security, fails to ensure value for money for the public purse, fails to help reach net zero, and fails to preserve biodiversity or protect human health. Basically sounds like a fail all round. And to think that I was ridiculed for saying cutting down trees wasn't sustainable. Apparently Greenpeace now agrees with me. It's a funny old world, isn't it? The world of woke. The world of woke. Now, the panel's all still here. Let's look at some of the other stories knocking around. My favourite, I think, is the Joe Biden one. Um, He says doctors have checked him over and he's absolutely fine. But guess what? They didn't have to give him any kind of cognitive test because apparently it wasn't required. Huh? Well, I mean, um, how yeah. do you get to that conclusion? Yeah, I mean, you think that would be the primary function yeah. for one of the leaders of the you would free have thought, world? <laughs> well, given that, you know, this week alone, he was talking about Donald Trump on a talk show, losing um, track of his argument. And while he was in the middle of it, he lost track of his own argument. Then he was seen holding an ice cream while announcing there might be a, um, a peace deal in the offing in Gaza. And you're just thinking, come on, if you're a doctor, surely you're going, we should really ask him to count backwards from 99 uh, and maybe ask him who was president of the United States in 1949. Well, I remember that they tried to make Donald Trump take this cognitive test yeah. constantly throughout his presidency. Yeah. The Democrats were banging on about how they needed to uh, invoke Article 25, I think, of the Constitution to say that he's mentally unfit to be right. president and things like that. And yet Joe Biden seems to get an easy ride from the press, although Funny that. Um, the Democrat re- recently looks like a lot more sort of friendly Democrat press, press like the New York Times are actually starting to criticise They him. did turn on him, didn't they, in that press conference after the, the news that he wasn't going to be prosecuted for removing the, the, um, the National Secure files. Yeah. And they said, well, we're not going to prosecute him because he's an elderly gentleman with a very bad memory. 
it just makes you wonder whether you get to that democratic convention mm. over the summer and whether people just turn on because that is the yeah. moment, that's the, that's mo- the, word, the mo- moment it? of no return. That's the word that, that, that it might happen. Yeah. And depending on who I speak to, it either definitely will happen or it's definitely not going to happen. But who so. is the successor, though? Well, it's not Michelle Obama. I'm pretty sure. I, mean, it's not. I think it's probably Gavin Newsom in California. I think so. They speak about Dean Phillips as well. Is that I... the woman from Michigan? No, it's a man, isn't it? Is it? Yes. I, mean, well, I, don't, think, I don't think he's got a lot of name recognition. There's a, woman in, in, there's a woman governor in Michigan who keeps getting mentioned, but I can't remember her name. So. It's, it's, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, when Biden tried to host this press conference to say that he's mentally fit and stuff, yeah. and then he suddenly got the president of Egypt yes. and Mexico. And Mexico. And his name mixed, mixed up. Mixed up. It's quite sad, really. It's quite sad. It, he did the same with Meteor and Macron. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> generations apart. Yeah. And Cole. I think Helmut Cole yeah, got yeah. mentioned and as Merkel, well. Now, that's just been going on for ages. So the idea that any doctor has passed him as fit is but absolutely ludicrous. Biden made quite a funny joke, I think, to be fair to him, saying that they said he looked too young. I think, right. Which, I mean, which he obviously knows the criticism about yeah, him. Yeah. And, yeah, which is quite a good moment from him, really. I suppose so. <laughs> I mean, it shows that he does still have a bit of a sense of humour. Yeah. Speaking of politi- politicians with sense of humour, um, there's a great story in The Sun tonight about Matt Hancock, who apparently, for some bizarre reason, went to speak at Eton. Yeah. I can't imagine why he would have done that. Um, but he went to, um, to make his speech, and he started having to go at Jacob Rees-Mogg without realising that his son was actually in the audience, yeah. who gave him a bit back, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, and uh, Hancock turned around and said, oh, this Jacob Rees-Mogg chap, who I sit next to in the Commons, is not a good politician. Little right. did know that young Peter Rees-Mogg, age 16, <laughs> was in the audience and turned around and said, actually, he's a very fine man, um, especially um, uh, he's loyal to his wife. Yeah, he didn't leave his wife. No, yeah. exactly. Very I mean, nice. There's some quotes from Jacob Rees-Mogg tonight, you know, you know, sticking by his son, and Peter was brave to stand up yeah. to, to Matt Hancock in front of all his, all his peers and I mean, say that. It's good that. to know that Hancock just still hasn't got it. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever he goes, he just puts two feet right in it, doesn't he? But it's so interesting because it's, you know, the, same, the colleagues in the same party sort of taking pot shots yeah. at each other. And it's the two caucuses of the Tory party, the right and the liberals. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though. That's what's ruined them. I mean, yes. they've, always been, they've yes. always been on the brink of ruin. But, you know, in the last, what, two years, three years, since Boris was, you know, unseated, they've never been anything but completely riven in at least two or three different bits. Yeah, no, they, the, the whole... It seems like they've got the five families for a start. You've got all these different parts <laughs> yeah. of the party that... Um, it's very difficult. And meanwhile, to Liz Truss is sort of, you know, disappearing <laughs> talk, <off laughs> talking about the deep state continuously. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, she's right. the libertarian. I mean, that's why she is the way she is. Yeah. She attracts all the eccentrics and yeah. all the do, cranks. Do you know, it's funny. When I was at school, yeah. I had, we, we had a talk from John Burko. Oh, yeah. And he was saying, I remember him saying, we should give three cheers to democracy. Our democracy is fantastic. And I, we could do a little QA thing. Yeah. And I put my hand up and said, oh, but Mr. Burko. What about the fact that UKIP have just got four million votes and one MP? Right. How can we give three cheers to democracy? Right. And he was very, very unhappy with me. And I remember <laughs> so this kind of banter between teenagers. I mean, I was about 15 at right. the time. That's it's good, quite, though. No, it's quite good. It's quite, I enjoy, I'm, glad, I'm glad Matt is coming to speak, I guess it's to Eton, so not exactly yes. sort of, you know. Um, I mean, I don't know what he's trying to prove by going to speak at Eton. Well, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's hoping to meet the parents mm-hmm. of some rich foreign kids. I mean, kids. really. I um, mean, can you, you know. imagine the amount in fees that you pay to send your child to yeah. Eton? And then Matt Hancock is coming to talk yeah. to them. Though, but he's is. another one who's so kind of brazen about... I mean, if I was Matt Hancock, I don't think I'd ever want to be seen in public again. <laughs> feels like he's so been embarrassed. several reality shows. Oh, he has. Like tens of thousands <laughs> yeah. of pounds. And you'd just be like, just go away. <laughs> just stop. I think he's standing down at the next election. So he's, he is, yeah. yeah. So he's, a, he's, he's now an independent MP. He didn't get the whip back. Right. So, um, well, I think at yeah. one point he thought he was going to in, in, in sort of start on some new television sort of personality oh, totally. uh, career. But I'm afraid... 
You're not very good. Well, there was a Tory MP, I think, in the 50s, in the Perfumo affair, mm. where after that he famously went off and yes. basically just quit politics completely. I think yeah. it was Perfumo. And Perfumo, Perfumo yeah. himself, yeah. right? Yeah. And he just... He went and did good works in Calcutta. Yes. Yeah, yeah, with homeless people mm. and things like that for about 18 years and yeah. never talked about it again. I think Matt Hancock can learn a few lessons. He really could did. you imagine the politicians of that era trying to get into reality television afterwards? They wouldn't. They had no. so much gravitas. Yes, it's so ashamed. Yeah, so he does it about no. Prince Andrew. It's probably what Prince Andrew does. What does John, what John Profumo did? Yeah. He actually goes out to East London and works in the, the charity sector mm. and just gets on with his life that yeah. way and actually does something fulfilling. Well, that might be good. One final one for you, and this is kind of related as well to the, to the figures from the, uh, from the Home Office. Britain's prison population expected to boom over the next four years, but 115,000 convicts are expected to be being held, but there's only space for 90. Now, my maths isn't brilliant, but that looks like about 20-odd thousand... Um, too many. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, recently, a Tory, a Tory minister was talking about the fact they're going to start deporting foreign criminals. Yeah. Why haven't they done this? They've been in exactly. power for 14 years. I know. It's this is all, like, you know, here's some new policy. Well, how about you just do what you said you were going to do? It's just unbelievable. Good night from me anyway, because you've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of you guys for coming in. Um, don't forget, Plank of the Week is on tomorrow night. That's at 7pm. We'll see you with The Independent Republic on Monday. <laughs>